You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Three, two, one, and we are back again for a hump day edition of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. And today's podcast is with Jason Friedstrom. Jason Friedstrom, and uh, he lives in Ohio. And uh, we're going to do kind of a BS session slash hunter profile podcast with him today. Um, but before we get into this, into that podcast, you know, I was, I want to take a trip down memory lane for a second and talk about the very first deer that I ever shot with a bow. And it is, it's something that I will absolutely never forget. It was a doe. It was mid October of 2006, right? So that's 12 years ago. And I had spent $65 on a tree stand from a farm store called Farm King and, you know, a really cheap ladder stand. Back then, I I really didn't know a lot about, I knew what sign was, I knew what a rub and a scrape were, but I didn't know how to play the wind really, I didn't know how to do any type of, um, uh, you know, strategy was a second you know an afterthought all i knew was there's a cornfield deer eat corn so i got to get in between where there's where they're sleeping uh during the day or bedding uh and that food source so i i drove down this little uh two track i took my tree stand uh in three different parts so i had to take three different trips from the truck to the uh stand location which was basically the thickest biggest trail from that from the the big timber up this finger to uh to the cornfield and i so i set it up and i came back the next day and i was going to hunt it on uh, a wind i think it was a west wind and it was blowing into the ag field right so really a, a low risk hunt at that point i didn't know i didn't have trail cameras back then so i didn't know what deer were in the area and again i had never shot a deer with a bow and about a hundred the first deer that walks by was a 120 inch i'd say a two-year-old 
And uh, I knew from talking with others and uh, see what uh, what deer I I saw previously from the tree stand and what deer I have seen uh, on the roads. I knew that that was a small buck for where I was hunting, so I really wasn't interested in in shooting it. But right behind this buck was a I'd say a mature doe. She was pretty healthy. And she was kind of walking about 50 yards behind this buck. The buck walks by me at about six, you know, six yards because I, I hung the stand right on the, um, I hung the stand right on the trail, right? So I had to basically shoot straight down. And this doe was taking her time, you know, munching on some leaves, munching on some acorns, you know, slowly working her way towards this uh, freshly cut cornfield. And there's this low spot. It was almost kind of like a washout where the deer had to go down and then come back up. And I, I, I remember her being behind a tree. So I drew back so she didn't see me. Then she popped back out um, on the tree of the tree on the other side of the tree, the good side, but she was angled right at me. And so I had to, I had to wait for her to take a, a step. So she would be broadside. And at that moment that she did that, I let the arrow go and I smoked her and she ran off. And that is one of the days that for me I will, I will never forget that day that I shot that doe, the very first, my very first bow kill. And it means as much to me as any buck that I've shot. Um, and I don't know what it is. You know, a lot of guys will try to write, you know, put it in writing or put it into video or, or do a good job to, you know, they'll try to express a feeling, and to me, that's exactly what it is. It's a feeling. Um, it's not something that can be described with words. It's not something that can be described with, um, you know, footage. It's an experience, and uh, life is made up of experiences. Um, and you know, I know I I do my job to try to share those experiences. Um, writers they try to write about those experiences, but. It will never match experiencing something like that for yourself. Uh, whether you're a fisherman, whether you're uh, you know you like to pheasant hunt, or or you just like to climb and hike mountains or go camping, whatever. Nature is a very powerful thing, and being able to live and experience nature has medical, like it's medical strength, man. I mean, it can cure what ails you. If if you're sad, if you're depressed go for a walk outside in the woods i'm telling you right now it is um it's life-changing and uh that day right there when i when i killed my very first doe i called my mom my mom was actually uh helping me drag my i called my buddy brent and he helped me drag the doe off to the side (laughs) i had never got a deer before by myself so I had, it took me like 30 minutes, 40 minutes to gut this deer. Cause I had no idea what I was doing. Um, my mom helped me. I called my mom up. She came and she helped me and, uh, we got it hung. We got it quartered up. My stepdad helped me. 
uh, quarter it up and uh, put the meat away. And and uh, I I wish and hope everybody gets experiences like that once in their lifetime, at least once in their lifetime. But you know, I'm I'm preaching to the choir here with. Uh, you know the people who listen to this show because I know that you guys are in the same boat as me this is our passion and uh yeah I kind of went off on a tangent there uh for some reason I'm feeling uh I don't know what the word it's like maybe emotional today about hunting um you know not trying to talk about big bucks but just like the feeling that I get when I go sit in a tree stand and get to experience nature uh and that's hands down better than winning the lottery so enough of that crap today's podcast is kick-ass just like every podcast hopefully i mean from my opinion (laughs) anyway but before we get into today's uh hunter profile podcast we're going to talk with skip from gearhead archery about what makes their bow so accurate I would have to say gearhead bows are so accurate um, because of the design of the riser being a center shot design. Uh, the string is uh, designed to be perfect between your riser plates. Um, and then also like your knock travel is perfect between your cams. So you have a true center shot design that can convert from right to left handed because everything is on center and you can just flip a grip and you can actually make it right to left handed as well. But the construction of that with the horizontal members with the side plates, it's not just bolted together <clears throat> with fasteners. It's actually a boss and pocket design. So the horizontal members have like an oval boss and the side plates have an oval pocket. So it's literally the structure becomes one. And it's, it's, I call it boss and pocket. Some people call it tongue and groove, but it's, it literally creates this, this shoot to riser design that is more accurate than anything on the market. And it has no stresses. So, like, if you have a chunk of material and you machine material away, the stress of that material starts moving. So, let's say I'm cutting a a handle portion. The tops of my risers on a traditional bolt is going to move towards where I'm cutting the material. When you're you're bolting two side plates together, it's just removing weight. There's no stresses to that. You, You bolt it together, and then you load it up with your limbs, and... With a traditional with a traditional bow, you have a cantilevered load. So when you put, let's say, 70-pound limbs on it, you don't know if your riser is going to move to the left or to the right. With our riser design, everything is dead center, and it doesn't move left to right. You can also do this test at home. Take your, your bow. Don't break it, but, but grab it by the, the outside of the riser and put your knee by the handle and look down on your dead-end string stop. And when you put a little pressure, you'll see that your string is actually moving across your dead-end string stop. And some of these bows don't take much. We're talking like 20, 30 pounds, and you can watch it move three-quarters of an inch. On our bows, it doesn't move um, very little. You can, of course, if you get, like, big arms and you really start cranking, you can, you can see it move a little bit. But our riser is so strong, and that center shot design is just super accurate, and that leads to super accurate shooting as well. If you want to find out more information about Gearhead Bows, visit gearheadarchery.com. And if you want to shoot one to test it out, which is worth a two-hour drive, I'm not joking, uh, go call them up, call up the company, ask where their closest dealer is, and uh, 
I have a feeling they'll be able to help you out with uh, trying to locate a bow and shooting it. Uh, other than that, guys, remember, check out gearheadarchery.com. And uh, that's about it, guys. This podcast today is brought to you by my wife's patience. So let's get into today's Hunter Profile podcast with Jason Friedstrom. All right, everybody, on the phone with me now is Jason Friedstrom. How are you doing today, Jason? Doing good, Dan. How about yourself? I tell you what, it's pretty hot in Iowa right now, and uh, the air conditioning is feeling feeling pretty good, although I have outdoor work I want to do, so I'm going to have to like wait until it's, the sun starts going down to do it. Yeah, I just, uh, I just got married this weekend, and so we are disassembling a tent, and it's a clear tent. So it's kind of like working in a greenhouse right now, <laughs> and that's what I'm doing right now. Yep. How how'd your uh, how'd your wedding turn out? Good. It was it was awesome, man. I uh, I married a girl who came over here from Ukraine, and so they involve the Ukrainian community, and it's kind of like a two week Amish barn raising in the suburbs. Everybody oh, just wow. pitches in. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So it's really uh, cool. A, a little different than your typical, I guess, Midwestern wedding. Yeah, yeah. I have to guess that like you and I probably dance pretty similar. You know, it's kind of the shuffle feed back and forth. The white boy so ha- Yeah, we have that. Yeah, and then next to you is a sixty-year-old guy twirling his woman at sixty RPM, <laughs> doing something I've never seen. So it was it was amazing. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah. Well, congratulations, man. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. Well, I, I say uh, t- this is kind of a BS session. You sent me a list of things that, uh, you know, you wouldn't mind talking about. And I think we'll just kind of like we always do on this podcast, shoot from the hip. But before we get into everything, um, why don't you tell us where you're from and what do you do for a living? Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I live in northeastern Ohio on the uh, kind of the Cleveland suburbs on the east side of Cleveland. I grew up about an hour farther east of that on a farm. So I've kind of come to the city, but, uh, I hunt primarily in Ohio, get out to Colorado, went down to Colorado once and headed back out there this year, but it's pretty much all Ohio. I've hunted around Columbus. I lived in Columbus for 10 years. I do a little bit of Southern Ohio public land hunting, uh, not particularly well. And then really kind of focused on like Northeastern Ohio, which isn't, you know, it's not really as much big buck country, but we still have fun. And I, uh, yeah, I work at a public company. I'm a manager of uh, data analytics. Nice. So data analysis. Yeah. Gotcha. I do a little bit of that myself, and there's days where I, if I could, if I could go back in time and find the guy who invented spreadsheets and punch him in the face, I I might just take advantage of that. Yeah, I mean, roofing will beat you up. But data will beat you up, too, in a whole different way. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, Ohio, uh, are you a Buckeyes fan? Yeah, I'm a Buckeyes fan. I went to Ohio State, Yep, 96 oh, to 01. Yep. All right. Well, hey, have a good day. We'll see you later. <laughs> Sorry, man. No, it's all good. It's all good. You uh, you guys have pretty much been uh, dominating the uh, Big Ten for the last couple of years in football anyway. So, uh Kudos to you, but hopefully the Hawkeyes can pull something out of their butt this year. Yeah, well, you know, and right now we're focused on the Cavaliers, but that's kind of a fleeting hope. So we'll, that's right. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've been watching that. That 
uh, I'm not, I typically don't watch basketball, but when I do, it's like, it's the NBA finals, right? It's the last series. I've never really gotten into basketball that much, but, um, yeah, the Golden State Warriors are, are a very good team. Yeah. You would need a miracle. You would need a serious miracle. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think the Cavs in a lot, in most other years, you know, the Cavs would be fine, but this is a, you know, once in a generation team we're playing. So that's right for sure. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about basketball, man. We are here nope. to talk about deer hunting. And, um, I, were you born and raised in Ohio? Yeah, I was. Okay. Yeah. Okay. When did you start, uh, hunting and then do you have anybody from your family or how did you get into hunting? So we had about a 130 acre farm and my dad didn't really hunt and I didn't really hunt until maybe I was 16. And, uh, my cousin, I think my cousin just said, Hey, let's give it a try. And we saw a few and just over a period of a couple of years, somehow I got hooked. When I went to college, I took like a little break, but then I met a buddy down there and we still hunt together every year. And, uh, late in college, we started making trips to Southern Ohio and then it just totally got me hooked on archery. So and that was in the late 90s, and it's pretty much been nonstop ever since. Gotcha. And how old are you now? 38. 38, okay. So your your family owned 130 acres. Was that primarily uh, agriculture or, or livestock, or was it just your family-owned property? We were basically running uh, beef cattle on it, most of the acreage, and we had a few fields that we would farm to alfalfa or corn. Right. And so then dad passed away and now we just have a guy down the street who's, who's farming the fields. And it's probably, it's probably about 50, 50. Okay. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And so, um, and so now I'm actually working to, uh, buy a piece of that land. So my stepmother lives on the house and me and another guy are going to buy the acreage around it. So. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. How many, how many uh, acres are you looking at, uh, getting then? It'll, we'll have, uh, to do what we want we'll have about about 80 80 okay so then yeah. that's where you kind of learn to hunt on that 130 yeah i would say that combined with a little bit of hunting around columbus ohio but gotcha. but the goat yeah the go-to has been you know drive back to the home farm and but in, interestingly my stepfather so my mom remarried it's just my stepfather he owns another 35 acres across the river from this property it's thick. I've shot deer there. I've shot deer on the next door neighbor's property. I've never shot a deer on the farm that I, <laughs> and, and actually, I, so I, I've been totally addicted to a, a Facebook group called Habitat Managers. And, uh, I just like chase after something that gets my curiosity. Habitat Managers is sucking me in on Facebook. And so I've kind of been getting interested in the habitat stuff as well. And so we're going to do a selective harvest this year. We're going to get the, you know, take some of the treetops down and stuff like that so that the farm that I'm on holds more bedded deer and it's got a lot more cover cover's been the issue it's mature woods gotcha so So i got a plan yeah so so on this uh 130 acres that your family had um you you had never killed a deer on that property but you have killed deer on the surrounding properties yeah all around the edges i've got some cousins that have killed a few deer but i've done all my my best hunting sort of around the edges of this property legally legally and whether i've got permission or my yeah, yeah right so so my goal I've kind of become obsessed this spring. I planted like 500 trees on it. Um, I've become obsessed with turning a farm into something that like, it kind of feels like you're on TV. You know, I want it to be, right. I want it to be a higher percentage. Shit, so, right. 
So on, on this uh, 130 acres that you ended up or that you were kind of raised on, um, didn't have any success there. Is that because the habitat didn't hold any deer, or had very low, uh, I guess, uh, occupancy rate? Yeah, they seem to bed. They seem to bed on other properties, and then they're just all over it at night. It's it's, gotcha. it's just a pretty nocturnal property, and it's not to say that they're not there during the day a little bit, but it's just not a high probability place to sit. So. Um, it's a great property in terms of deer traffic, just the wrong time of day. So, right. So I take it you plan it, you know, you're in the process or thinking about, or that buying that 80 acres, I take it that those 500 trees that you purchased, were, uh, ended up going on that 80 acres. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. And what kind of trees did you end up buying just out of curiosity? Well, I'm trying to sort of feather some edges and create some thickets with, uh, like, white pine, just kind of a fast-growing pine, and yep. uh, so there's those. I uh, And this is what's so cool about hunting is you can just follow, you know, follow these little tangents, and I, I got into chestnuts a little bit. You know, I was outraged by the fact that chestnuts disappeared however many years ago, and I found a guy on how to raise chestnuts. I went and talked to him. He's like a chestnut guru that knows everything you could possibly ever know. <laughs> so put some chestnuts in to, you know, to get the mass going, but really it's been a focus on, on thickening it up. So I even put in like, uh, uh, different, different shrub varieties, things to get, just to get the undergrowth going. And then, then behind that is like, you know, some, some hybrid oaks, some swamp white oaks, depending upon the soil. And so I've got kind of a short term plan with some trees and then I've got a longer term plan with stuff that it's not even going to, it's not going to be there for 20 years, you know, 30 years. So did you do any type of hinge cutting or anything on this property to increase the thickness, or is it just plant trees so far? I planted trees, and uh, I, I've done a lot of soil tests. I pretty much know there, there's a variety of soil there, and so I know what all the soil is in terms of fertility, in terms of whether it's a nice loam, which having planted trees, I don't know the difference between loving loam and hating trying to get something into and growing in clay. And, uh, and then this summer we'll let the loggers do some work. So I haven't really done much. I've, I've since cut a quarter acre or something like that. And I said, you know, I'm going to wait on this and just let them do a selective harvest to, to work on that and, piece. Gotcha. So when did you really start looking at the property management portion of it, like uh, in habitat improvement portion of it? I'd say probably like seven years ago, I started an interest in food plots and so then i did about three years worth of really poor food plots um just making mistakes and then started to get the flute the food plots down and what i found is yeah occasionally they would hold deer there like during the day and, and it it didn't hurt anything but i said what i've got is a cover issue so in the meantime i've and especially like i said with the facebook groups and the information you can find my food plots have gotten better and still i just need to round it out and deal with the cover and then in the meantime while that's going on, I'll just keep hunting those other thicker properties around it. So. Right. So, yeah. so then we've had, a, we've had a couple guys on here and talked about, you know, the, the learning curve for food plots. And you mentioned it took you a couple years to get, you know, in the groove. What are some things high level that uh, you had to learn the hard way, I guess, uh, to have a, a good food plot? I'd say the number one, Probably for me, the number one thing was kill it, let all that weed um, germinate, you know, and give it time. Don't rush it. Because if you rush it, if you just kill something and you, and you don't let the weeds germinate, 
fighting weeds is just it's just impossible. And it's not that, you know, weeds can be really good browse. So maybe that's not even a bad thing. But if you want to have like a successful uh, field of something that's not Roundup ready, um, you just got to get the weeds under control before you before you put the seed in. So that's right. that's one thing. You know, make you know it's it's a good thing if you can be patient, wait for some rain coming before you put the seed down. But I, mean, I can ramble about food plots for a long time now. But those are probably right. the key things. Right. So I know. I've never really gotten into food plots. I've done it and it's somewhat fun. You know, I love, I love doing the trail cameras this time of year. I love doing the shed hunting as kind of an extension of the, the whitetail cycle. I've had a couple buddies say that once you can dedicate yourself to a, you know, a food plot and doing property management, it's, it's just, just makes everything that much more fun. Is that true? Yeah. And I think even if, even if deer never came to them, it's just kind of fun. You know, it's just another puzzle to try to figure out and and you get to sit on a tractor maybe to do it. So, uh, I love sitting on a tractor. And so that in itself, I'm probably adding a bunch of hours every year to the habitat management and even sitting a little bit less. And it's kind of just because I like it. Like it's fun to check back in a month and be like, okay, this is starting to look pretty good. You know, and the, probably the closest thing I had to like, um, a big success out of it is I put in some warm season grasses in this field and it's maybe three and a half acres of warm season grasses. And then yeah. I put in some alfalfa right next to that. And there was a summer or two years where I walked up to the field of alfalfa and I thought I saw like a stick, like a tree growing up in the grasses. And then it turned its head and it was just a beautiful nine point bedded down in those grasses in the summer with velvet on, you know, and, and so that buck, that was a buck I became obsessed with for like two years and he really did set up shop right in the little, the little section I had made for somebody like him, you know? Yeah. And I never saw him during the season, during the day, I get my cameras at night and I pat finally one, one year I passed him at about 35 yards on a doe in the rut. And, uh, I just, it was a shot I wasn't quite ready to take and I let him walk. And then he came back through, uh, later that day and I didn't have a shot. And uh, I was obsessed with this buck. And then like a week later, I took a buddy out from work and put a bad shotgun shot on him and we never, never saw him again. And uh, so anyway, it was close. It was almost a victory with that deer. And th- that guy's name was Jim. He'd like me to mention him right now, I think. <laughs> but, <laughs> that was you the need most to practice on your day. shot, Jim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I realized, you know, before any of us hunt together, we're going to make sure these guns are right on, you know. Mm-hmm. So For anyway. sure. Yeah. So then... When did you, I guess now backtracking just a hair, you were 16 really when you started, but when did you really start getting into uh, hunting? And was that kind of uh, a bow hunting only or a gun only, or did you kind of do a, a little bit of everything? Um, I would say in our, my early 20s, uh, a friend and I said, you know, we're going to look for permission around Columbus. I lived down in Columbus for 10 years. And at that time, um, it seemed like you could probably go out and find somebody that would let you hunt. So we did the whole, I think there was Google Earth or Maps at that time, something that we could look online, uh, GIS site or something like that, find some property owners. And we drove around for a couple of weekends and we found a farm on the west side of Columbus and it had some decent deer on it. And at that point, probably is when I really started sinking time into archery hunting in the stand we had gone to southern ohio a little bit without a ton of success uh, but there were some good deer there and we, sh- we shot a few 
And yes, I would say by my early mid twenties, they're kind of getting into it and it really hasn't, it's been up and down a little bit, but hasn't really stopped and I'll, I'll grab a shotgun or a muzzle loader. Uh, but I'd rather just go with bow for everything if I could. So, right. Right. So then, uh, when you were hunting in, you know, those, those suburbs of, or in around the surrounding area of Columbus, uh, would you consider that suburb hunting or is, was that just further enough out where it necessarily wasn't country, but it wasn't suburbs? You know what I mean? That was, so I've done the suburbs one year and that was last year. And that's actually Northeastern Ohio. Um, but down there that was country. We were out in, in farm country, uh, medium ag. It's probably not big ag, but it's medium ag. Gotcha. Yeah. Was there a lot of pressure from other hunters uh, in the area? I mean, were you seeing – and describe what you said, uh, good quality. What, what's good quality? It was, a, uh, it was one of those uh, magical conversations where you walk up to a farmer and he's sitting out on the porch with his wife, and they say, well, we haven't had anybody hunt here for about 20 years. <laughs> there's a lot of deer. So – and, and actually, they had a daughter who was single at the time, and here comes two guys rolling up that maybe <laughs> partly rep. You know, we like dress like maybe we we're going to go golfing or something. So we tried right. to we tried to look like decent people, and uh, so maybe maybe that was part of it. I don't know, but I would never <laughs> ask her out because I didn't ask her out because I didn't want to risk the permission. Once we got permission, I didn't want to mess anything up. You know? <laughs> yeah, you could, the relationship could have went sour, and you could have lost your best piece. Yeah, yeah. I had met their daughter, and then my buddy hadn't. And then when he did, he's like, "Dude, why didn't you ask her out?" I'm like, "Man, I, you know, there's other there's other people out there that and women out there <laughs> not on a good permission like this." And I would say that year there was there was a deer in the woods that was maybe like, uh, 150 something like that. But I never saw him from the stand, and I ended up shooting a deer in the in the 120s. But that was like my first like decent buck, really. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, that's so a, then, that's a so then after college, you kind of moved back up to Northeast Ohio. Yeah. Well, well, okay. it was, uh, let's see, that was about, that was about 10 years ago. I moved back up here. Yeah. Okay. So then 10 years ago, you're, you know, you're, you're back in your, I guess, did you go back to the farm that you were hunting most of your life in, in those surrounding farms? Yeah, we do. Um, I do a deer camp with some friends so I could still get my Southern Ohio fix. And, uh, we've seen decent, we've been in, uh, if your listeners know this, we've been to Meigs County a little bit. Now we've moved out to a, to a different County in Southern Ohio and hunt some public land. So I kind of get that fix, but, uh, yeah, most of my hunting is probably just cause it's close. I'm in Northeastern Ohio. And, uh, like I had told you, um, last year, some suburbs opened up to, to calling and well, it's actually, here's the story in, 2015 uh, at the beginning of rut i had a little stroke off after a flight and uh i was really fortunate i totally recovered but you know i was worried about the timing you know how's my health and and so i was i had taken some time off work to recover and i was in my uh now wife's uh driveway in these suburbs and uh, dude, it's probably 170 inch 10 point walked across like the hood of my car while I'm sitting. I basically had a dead battery plunk store, but I was waiting for her yeah. in a parking lot. It's November 8th, maybe 170 inch buck walks 15 feet from my car. And I was like, this is, I mean, it was unbelievable. It's just an amazing year. And then the next year they opened those burbs up to, to hunting. And I started calling around and I actually got permission from those woods. And I mean, I was like a 
kid in a candy store. I couldn't, when I, when I made the phone call to the guy and he was just a really nice guy and he gave me permission. I mean, I just thought like, it was like a dream come true at Huntington Suburbs. So, uh, I spent a lot of time there last year actually. And that's a whole other adventure. I mean, that's what's so cool about hunting right now is it's the same, but there's so many different routes you can go down. So it wasn't a fall of shooting, um, deer in a barrel, fish in a barrel. Uh, the cameras were great over the summer, but then really getting on a good deer, even in the burbs, it was, it was tough. It was actually pretty tough hunting. And the worst thing about it is, you know, they're out there. There was a, like a, um, radio towers about three blocks down the road. Underneath those radio towers were three just world-class bucks. One might have pushed 200. I mean, they were huge. Yeah. So I'm looking on a map, and I'm like, they're probably going to wander down to where I'm hunting, and they never did. I never got one of them on camera. They were old and lazy and probably dead in like three weeks, you know? Yeah. Um, but so so last year was like a lot of excitement and a lot of good hunting, but then as reality sets in, I'm like, no, this is still pretty tough. These bucks are hard to right. find. And, yeah. So... so Describe how you had to go about, uh, was it just a free for all, just like public land? You had to, you anybody could go in these areas or, I mean, they had to get permission from some of the property owners, I take it, but, or yep. was there kind of a lottery or something you had to s- sign up for? You just had to get permission. It wasn't on any of the public parks or anything like that. And it was, you had to have at least five acres, whether you owned it or whether you could get permission from someone who did. And so for me, I didn't really know a lot of people in the area. So I made a list of property owners and I just started calling and it was the third call that like made it all happen for me. So I just, you know, it's, it's not something that I like to do. You kind of have to push through things you're really uncomfortable with. And I'm like, you know, 20 people just going to tell me to get lost, but there's so many deer there, you know, there's so many deer there. They kind of supported. Yeah. It needs to, the population needs to come down. So I got the permissions and it, I had so much time into the preparation. You got to go to Gander mountain and get, uh, get a proficiency test. You've had to fill out a lot of paperwork. I mean, they had to like a barrier to entry to make sure you're serious about it. And you're, I guess, uh, not a Yahoo. So once I got that permission, um, then what I found is a lot of times in the burbs, you'll get a, like a block of timber that's developed around the roads, around the edges and, You've got woods in the middle, but everybody owns different property around the edges, and you've got to get permission to park somewhere to get in. And so just like the chestnut guy, who I just happened to meet a chestnut guy who was awesome with the trees, I met a family adjacent to one of these properties. It was the first place I stopped. They had a big driveway. They were very friendly. I got to know their kids a little bit, and so I was able to kind of park at their place, figure out the woods back behind them. Um I had told you I, I bought a millennium. I bought two millennium stands last year. I bought an L two hundred, and it was because I wanted to be able to maybe take his son out, who was like thirteen and kind of interested. What's this about? Yeah. And so uh, I scouted it like any other property. I figured out where the bedding appeared to be. You know, tried to set up in a transition area where the wind was right. Um, some of the like the does weren't particularly wind and scent sensitive, but like still some of the deer they were. You know, you, you just had to apply all that same stuff. So I find bedding getting a little open area and transition areas and, uh, and sit, I, I would say in the burbs, it seemed like they were a little more daytime active. So it wasn't this perfect. Okay. Somebody's going to get off his bed right before dark and head my way. I mean, at any given time you could go intrude on something walking around. So, um, but it was like, I, just the time I put into just prepping to try to get myself into the burbs and then try to find access to them. It was, it was really hard actually. So. Yeah. 
So, so this proficiency test, I know that, um, we had the same thing in, in, uh, Iowa city. It's kind of close to where I live. They have, um, uh, suburban hunting too. And you have to go, you have to take a proficiency test. And I think it's like, you have to hit a, basically a pie plate, five arrows in a pie plate at 20 yards. So nothing, it might even be shorter than that. Right. Um, yeah. and then it's, a, for this one, it was doe only, right? So you had to shoot, you could only shoot does, but if you shot five does, then you could get an extra buck tag on the year. Okay. Uh, was, was your scenario anything like that? Or was it just any tags, any tags you wanted? I think it was a one doe and then a buck. I can't remember. It might've been two does, but I think it was, you had to get a doe to take a buck and there was still the one buck limit. And in the end, I ended up taking three does and one buck. And if I had the energy and the time I would have taken, I think it was like six to 10 is what the, the bag limit was. And I would have taken them all just because the area needs it. And I could have yeah. donated those deer, but I just ran out of energy, man. I was <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. sick of killing deer. You thought yeah, you'd never I, say it, right? Yeah, I hauled four out of there, and I, you know, I felt like I did my part. And then I kind of scouted it late in the season, and I don't know. We got on video as we were looking for sheds, actually, uh, fifteen does running through. I'm like, well, I guess I still have a lot more work to do. <laughs> but you did feel like you know you had all these bucks on camera in august september and then you feel like you know right down the street there's guys with garages and six acres and they've got a corn feeder right behind the garage and you know they're just dropping bucks you know i mean you could just see them disappearing and never see them again so yeah um so it, yeah there's i think a lot of bucks got taken and every deer that i shot had corn in its belly so i felt like and i didn't i didn't run a corn feeder or anything so so yeah. it probably won't be near as good uh this next year It'll probably think. be good, but it don't, it, I don't think it'll be as good. I think the top-end bucks, a lot of them probably were taken, yeah. Gotcha. So with this being uh, different than your, what you're typically used to out in, like, out in the country, is this something that you're going to continue to do and sign up for, or it was just, just something that you're like, well, I'll give it a try? I think I'll continue to do it. Um, one, because I just feel like that's yeah, the right thing to do. I mean, if I didn't do it, someone else would, but I'm like, we need to, to reduce the herd a little bit in this area and I live near it. So I'll do it cause it's the right thing to do. It's still pretty fun. And now I kind of have a, I have like an affection for the spot I was in, you know, I'd like to see it next year if I can, you know, see what's in there. Um, so I'll, I'll keep doing it. And, and the does, like I said, were pretty easy. The bucks were difficult. In no time did it did it overall did it feel easy though. It still felt pretty yeah. tricky, especially since I didn't live there. So it was still a challenge for sure. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to backtrack again and talk a little bit about um, the stroke that you had um, and yeah. how it kind of opened your eyes up a little bit to you know the hey I better live life while I can live life type of thing. Um, yeah. You know. You mentioned it happened during the rut, so it kind of affected your hunting season. Did what was going through your mind when you know it happened, and I guess after it happened, but you, you start thinking about your life. And you mentioned a little bit before we started recording how you were going to start opening up your horizons a little bit more. Yeah, I would say yeah. Just the past couple of years, it's kind of pushed me to get after it a little more. You know, whether it's 
at work or my personal relationships or with the hobbies like hunting, just, you know, make sure you plan things, make sure you do things you want to do, spend time with friends, that kind of thing. I, I got off a flight. We were walking around a factory. So, and, and nobody knows if it was related to that. They can't nail down it to any, or nail it down to any cause. I reached down, I stretched my legs out as we're walking around because we've been on our feet for a while. And I noticed the left, the left side of me, it felt really tingly, a little bit numb. And if I held like a, a Coke up to my lips, I would just like miss my lip by a little bit. So I'm like, did I pinch a nerve just now or something like that? And if you, if you went across my face, it'd be like on the right-hand side, normal, normal, normal. On the left, it was like tingly, tingly, tingly. So, you know, just for your listeners, any symptoms like that, you get somebody to the hospital, ASAP, and you don't necessarily uh, give them aspirin because you can also have a hemorrhaging stroke where aspirin is just going to cause that to to maybe bleed even worse. So you've got to get somebody in, you've got to get them scanned and then they can figure out what to do. I was better aside from like some residual anxiety. I was better within, you know, a week or two. There were some, some trailing symptoms, but, uh, I was very fortunate. Not everybody is, but I was, but as I sat in the hospital, um, yeah, it really, you know, get some perspective and the most immediate way, uh, that I, I don't know, manifested is I started hunting as soon as I felt ready and I get back out there. So I hunted that rut, and uh, I would uh, I would carry a lifeline up the tree with me. There's a 25 foot rope or something like that, and I bought a uh, a piece of mountaineering hardware descender. And so I thought, like, well, if I have an issue up here, um, and I had an app where people could see where I was at, but if like I had an issue, I would just sort of clip through the sender into the rope, and then I could just kind of, you know, float down to the bottom where they could find me. At least I wouldn't be 20 foot up the tree, you know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It was, yeah, so it was scary, but I did keep hunting. That was fun. Um, and then, and I had told you, like, I knew I was going to get married pretty soon. And so that's sort of another thing where I, well, I got to hunt as much as I can as well. And that's where I got into uh, just last year, particularly with the burbs and with the habitat and stuff like that. But it, um, you know, you don't want to be too, you don't want to be a downer about it. But every day is a gift, man. It totally is. You forget it sometimes. You get annoyed by stuff, um, things that really aren't as important start to get real important in your head and uh and and so that kind of i guess awe about life it's there for a little bit and it kind of fades but anything you can do to keep that fresh and stay excited so in some ways you know it's a little bit of a blessing for me right so it it opened your eyes and you know between that and you know you getting married what was what are some of those things that you took advantage of? I mean, was it just more time spent hunt, hunting or hunting related things, or was it calculated? Um, I would say just in terms of I'm more aggressive about planning stuff now. Um, I have to be honest; like it's <laughs> you look at a little pile of trees when you go to plant these trees, and it looks like this isn't going to be any work. And then I got way in over my head planting trees this year. And it was just days and days of like, literally like losing weight and just almost collapsing at the end of the day. It sounds, it sounds stupid now, but I really got over my head with the, the trees and stuff like that. And so, but I, I was happy to do it, you know, and, um, and sure it's like, you know, just really at work, just do the best job you can at work just stuff yeah. like that. Just try. And, but for more, uh, I would say it's more just trying to plan stuff and do stuff, whether it's, you know, we haven't seen these friends for like a year and a half. Let's make sure we get like a dinner on the calendar or something like that, or, or make sure we're spending time with parents and that kind of thing. Right. For sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. 
So, so then as let's say these, these hunting seasons, they come, these hunting seasons go. Um, and I want to, I want to focus a little bit on the, the 130 acres that you grew up in and those surrounding parts. You, you mentioned you did some food plot work, but are you running trail cameras a lot? How do you identify the deer that you're chasing? I would say like peak trail camera year was probably like 2014, 2015. And then the more I've gotten sensitive about scent and intrusion and things like that, maybe I've dialed the cameras down a little bit and I pull them more to the perimeter. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll throw a, throw a mineral lick down, put a camera on it, see what's there. But I'm really not going back into the woods with cameras anymore. Uh, last year, I did pick up two cellular cameras, and they're awesome. I, I've had, I had luck with a spy point that I got and a bush now. For whatever reason, they both behave themselves. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty cool. Uh, really addictive. And <laughs> if I had to buy another piece of gear this year, I'd be trying to maybe save up for a third one, you know, because you can just <laughs> set it and forget it for a while. So the batteries are gone. Right. Uh, sure. But yeah, that's, yeah. I've, that's one thing. That's one piece of uh, equipment that I, I purchased one a while ago. Uh, I set it up in the woods. I barely got any type of uh, service out there where I hunt. It's uh, in the middle of nowhere and it's low yep. too. So, um, I don't know if there is a plan for me that would justify me buying one, which sucks because I, I would really love to start using cellular trail cameras. Yeah. I would say if you get one, don't, it's not going to be, I can rush out to the woods in 20 minutes and drop this camera in. It yeah. might be on the phone with tech support off and on a couple times. Like you said, do you need, do you have to bounce around between a couple different carriers and how do you do that? How do you figure out where you've got coverage, whether it's ATT or Verizon? So, yeah. um, they were both a little bit of a hassle and I was on the, I was on the phone with spy point actually quite a bit. And then once we figured it out, it worked, but you know, like any technical problem, it's like, ah, uh, I got to kill half a Saturday trying to figure this out. Right. Um, but you, yeah, you certainly have to have a sense of like, okay, we probably got coverage there before you invest the money and the time to put a camera in it. So for sure, once you do so, though, once you get them working, they're great. You know? Right. So then how do you approach your season? I mean, are you, do you go in and hunt some does right off the bat? Uh, are you hunting specific deer? What's your, what's your goal every year as far as not just hunting, but maybe what kind of bucks you're chasing? Yeah, as we get busier, I think it's something that we're all kind of, a lot of people are echoing right now, which is maybe hunting more when the time's right, if you're targeting bucks. If I feel like I've got a pretty good spot for doe, I'll certainly get in. I, I'm not really someone who wants to keep all the doe there so I have the best rut or anything like that. It's just, yeah, I, I could take a doe or two. Um, so October is a little lighter, probably, and then just try to dump the time in the best time of year. If I had a pattern on a buck like you know if he was if he was reliable early season i'd do that but um it's been a little while since i've had that opportunity so i really focus on november and december right okay. so um are you are you the kind are you a run and gun guy or are you a uh, i got everything already set up before the season even starts I'm the circumstances or i try to be flexible and the circumstances right. are going to dictate what i do so I probably have gotten away from as many permanent stands because I find myself putting them up and then not wanting to sit them for a lot of the season. So I've got two spots that I'll put a hang on in 
because I know it's probably going to be good. And then I'm pretty mobile from there. I mean, I've in the past, it's been just summit climber all over the place. I still haven't sat in a stand as comfortable as my summit climber. But then last year, I, I got to hang on Millennium as well. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it just it depends on the circumstances. But what's cool is you've kind of heard, you know, you've heard a lot of smart people talk about what to do in, in all of those different circumstances. And so you can kind of pick the tactic that you think's right right now. Right. For um, sure. I will say, I will say this. I don't think, I don't think I've sat a food plot and shot a deer on a food plot maybe ever. So, you know, it enhances the property, but it's not really something that I'm hunting too much because it's so nocturnal. So. Right. And do you think that's just because your, your property, um, not yes. having the, the proper bedding on it that needs to keep them closer to those particular food plots? Yes, I would say so. Yep. Okay. So it's and not so the, quite the, uh, as seen on TV type of, uh, property where, you know, you got bucks cruising at one o'clock in the afternoon. Yep. So it's not that it doesn't work. It just doesn't work for me yet. Yep. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you know, you mentioned hunting all of the surrounding, um, of the surrounding properties. Let's talk a little bit about the terrain of those properties and because you've you've mentioned a little bit about the 130 acres that you've uh that you've hunted but the surrounding areas you feel are a little better as of right now what makes them good what's the terrain like so there's uh there's kind of two themes that you could apply to the two different ends of the property uh i hunt on the east of the property and i hunt on the west of the property the property drops off probably 120 feet to our river valley on the west and then it's flat ag fields uh, extending east. On the east is a real thick woods that the neighbor owns, and that's pretty good doe bedding. And then on the west is it really the property on the west butts up to a freeway, and it's real thick along the freeway. And so the western side of the property is very hard to get to. You basically got to put on waders, walk across a river, stash the waders, get in a stand. But it's a nice kind of like hunting beast, den infall rolling in the you know afternoon and you might get them off of bedding with the wind coming at you from the west right and it's and it's thick and so if you have the energy to go down 120 feet cross the river set up in a transition area as they come out of that thicker western property that's a good recipe and uh actually in 2011 uh it's a uh, let's see it's a, a good story and a little bit of a cringy story but we had the best year i've ever had on the property I walked up on, walked up on him in some tall grass in like late October, and he jumped up in front of me. It was like 190 inch. Uh, well, he broke his brow tine off, so he probably grossed. I think he was in the low 180s. He jumps yeah. up in front of me, runs away. I'm like, wow, I've never seen that deer on camera or anything. What I did is I was getting desperate. I didn't see him during the bow season. I went down across the river, like I said, and I was just getting kind of, I don't know, wily coyote or something like that. And I hiked a corn feeder back in there. I hiked 100 pounds of corn back in there in three trips, and about 100, maybe 20 yards off of this bedding, I thought, maybe he's in there. I let that stew through gun season. Nobody's in there. And then, actually, the prior year, I had kicked 15 people out of that property. So it just worked out that I had just kicked a bunch of people out prior year, and then in 2011, I set up a corn feeder the last day of gun season. I took my cousin in, and we're set up, you know, 100 yards from bedding. And sure enough, man, right as it got dark, that deer walked. So it was a gun kill, but I killed him at four yards underneath me, but I killed him on a corn feeder. <laughs> so 
And I've hunted a corn feeder as many, you could count them in uh, the number of times I've hunted corn feeder on even your hand. Even one of your hands. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, and I haven't done it since, but like for that, that one year, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I did it. So that's the Western property. It's thick, and I want to I get like a four-wheeler trail, uh, something that I can get to it easier. But now yeah. it's kind of like if you got the energy going. Then on the east, you had a guest. Uh, one one uh, second, one to, second. Sorry. Before you yep. get on the east, that buck yeah. that you shot, what what? So the previous year he was 190, you said? It was that year. It was it was in October of that year and I shot him at the beginning of December. Yeah. And and what did he score? He with a brow tine broke off, netted like 173, and if he had that brow tine, I think he'd have been well gross, he'd have been mid one mid high 180s. Yeah. Okay. So he's a giant. You shot a giant. Not, uh, yeah, non-typical. He had a little 6-inch drop tine. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome um, and that's and in a I, part I, of I ohio you. like i mean that's in a part of ohio where maybe there's a couple deer like that killed in the county that year maybe yeah, yeah. what's cool about that though is you did everything legally right ohio mm-hmm. is a baiting uh, is a baiting state and yep. you knew you know from maybe some past experience and from bumping that deer that he was going to be in that area uh, the wind, you know, you use the wind, but then you also use the baiting strategy in which, you know, if it's, if it's, uh, something that you can do and do legally, why not? Right. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll put an asterisk next to the kill maybe, but I'm still okay with it. And, you know, we're all busy. We've got jobs. Right. We've got people that need us in their lives. And so how much time do you, you know, it's getting late in the season. So it's kind of a hail Mary. Yeah. And well, it's, it's cool. not my good. Yeah. Not my go-to I mean, strategy, but I told my friends, I was like, I'm going to get weird with it. I'm going to do whatever I can do right now. To, and I actually, yeah, I think I put it in during the Ohio State-Michigan game. So, like, I sacrificed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I That's felt funny. all right. So, as soon as you bumped that deer, you went in with, uh, or did you try to hunt him a couple more times, you know, before the gun season came? I bumped him somewhere completely different. I just couldn't figure out where he was, and I just placed a bet. I was like, you know, during gun season, I think I've got rid of the poachers out of here. Uh, during gun season, when the pressure comes in, if I was a deer, I'd head this way. Um, and so it was like a month later, and I hadn't really thought of what I'd do if, if archery didn't work out. So it was, like I said, late November, and uh, I'm like, here's what I think I'm going to do. I think he might be in there. And sure enough, what had happened is I put a camera on that feeder, he found the feeder on a uh, Friday, and I was there on Saturday evening. And, and the property had sat there kind of just undisturbed all through gun season. And sure enough, that worked. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. pretty cool. That uh, that strategy ended up working out. Um, um, oh, man, because how often – the thing about it is how often does a plan work? The plans, we try, you know, but how often can you get it to work? It's not too often. So right. It was cool. For sure. So, so that that's the west side of the property, right? You were, you were getting ready to, before I interrupted you. You were getting ready to start talking about the east side of the property. Yeah. So, if you're a deer and you're bedded in the west, um, and you want to come eat some soybeans at night, you'd walk across a, a fairly small river, but it's deep enough. You're not going to cross it with lacrosse boots. You've got to put waders on it. So, if you're a deer, you walk across that. You'd go up a hill that, at some places, you can't even climb, but there's a few points that you can get up it. You go up about 120 feet, and then you've got ag fields. 
And so then if you continue across those ag fields, eventually you hit kind of a thick woods on the east side of the property. Yeah. And so, so I'll take that back around to, uh, you had a guest, one or two guests ago, who talked about kind of the late morning doe bedded down, bucks cruising at, you know, 1030 yeah. or something like that. Yep. That's what's worked over there. So I've got a place on the west that's more of an afternoon kind of place. And then on the east, um, I pulled a couple 140-inch deer out of there. It's always been both of them. They were back-to-back two different years. I think it was like 2013, 2014. Um, where, and this is where you could all probably sleep in till 8.30 if you wanted to and go hop up the tree at 9. And even though you feel like you're late, you've missed everything, it's still, you know, if the day's right, you're just fine. So right. east side of the property is a north to south woods. There's a finger kind of by a, it's a finger of woods that runs out. It butts up to the road. There's a thick spot in there about six acres, and it's full of does. And uh, I'll sit... Um, kind of where the wind's not taking my scent right into that and twice it's been late morning uh a buck headed into that area twice give him a grunt and they came my way so um that's a great spot he's his brother has moved this neighbor's brother has moved back into town so i really don't hunt over there as much as i did like in the early two 2010s right but so would you say yep. that this is that pretty, a really good pre-rut spot to catch you know those those mature bucks maybe coming cruising downwind of a, a doe bedding area looking for that first hot doe um both days it was november 16th and so it's okay. almost like it's almost like they've found a bunch of hot does and now they're looking for the, the tail end gotcha and i've had a lot more luck on the tail end to be honest with you at least where i hunt it just seems like earlier november you know maybe the doe ratio is too high and they're locked down yeah. And so if I had to pick a week, I'd probably pick a week later than most people talk about, at least where I'm at. Yeah. Right. You know, I've been looking a lot at, I don't know if you know what Deer Lab is, but yep. I've, I've been looking at a lot of my times for Deer Lab and it makes me want to not hunt that first week in November, but hunt the second and third week of November, almost leading up right into, into Thanksgiving, uh, showing that there's more mature bucks on their feet during the, the second and third week than there is the first and second week, if that makes sense. So That's I agree with you. Yeah. That's interesting you say that. Yeah. And I know a lot of guys that they get excited about the first week in November and then they're texting me, you know, and I'm sitting at work and it's not great for them. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that's a, I don't know how much, well, you've got data to support that, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know that peak breeding necessarily means peak activity, you know? For sure. Well, yeah. yeah well, and you know, perceived, that's all perceived peak activity, you know, rutting activity, because, you know, a lot of hunters, you know, oh, it, it's, it's crap. It's crap. Well, we also have to remember that the, the, the whitetail is a nocturnal animal. So a majority of its movement is going, is going to be during the, you know, during the, the, the nighttime hours. So, and that's one thing. That's one thing that really gets me is people are like, oh, the rut's been sucking this year. Now the rut's happening. Right. It's just happening yeah. while you're not in the tree stand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if, if a lot of does are bred, um, get out there when a buck's got to get on his feet and try to find, try to find the next situation for him, you know? Yeah. And it, and it really, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's coincidence or not, but a lot of people talk about late morning and for whatever reason, that's kind of what I've noticed as well. Yeah. 
right? So, so when do you really start hitting the woods hard then? Well, there's so there's two related things I'll mention about the about those. Um, in the burbs, there's a ton of does, and I had a camera up a tree and I left it there through the rut, and there were bucks cruising hard. You know, you get like a picture of a doe with its tail up running, and then the next picture is a buck behind her. And that went on from the beginning of November to probably like December 20th. And I mean, it's like a lot of the same bucks. I'm going, wow, these guys have been running for weeks. And I think it's like those go in heat and they can't, they can't even help themselves. So when you have too many does, I actually think that could be, it could be hard on a buck because a buck just doesn't know when to stop. Yeah. So it looks to me like in the suburbs, the rut was like a month and a half long with a lot of activity. And then also tell you real quick, I talked to the farmer this year and he had never told me this. The guy that farms our property and my dad never told me this in the late nineties, he came into a field by our place and he had like 40 does out in the field at night. And he and his son took nuisance permits and they killed 35 does that year. I didn't know this. I was down in college and he said for the next decade off his tractor was the biggest bucks he'd ever seen in the area. Once they brought that doe ratio way, way down. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, and, you know, part of that could be if a buck kind of tapers off the rut a little bit earlier, maybe he doesn't run himself so hard that winter, you know? Right. Um, so, anyway, so, yeah. Also, I, I heard that these big, mature, old bucks, right, the ones who have been through several ruts, they're they're – they're your they're loners right so they don't like being bothered by other deer right so if there's a small group of does that he knows about you know i've heard guys talk you know talk about this where the um the the you're you're going to find the bigger deer in less populated areas as far as deer population is concerned because they they just I don't know. They they don't like to be around other deer. They're not people persons per se, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, this farmer, I mean, I think a, a, a tractor is probably one of the best scouting tools you've got. They just don't seem to run from it. And that's what he told me. He's like, he had a buddy in town and the guy said, I want to see some deer on the corn, uh, on the soybeans in the evenings. And he said, he'd come to our place in the early 2000s. And that's after they took a lot of does out. So if you feel like you've got does bedded in every corner, it's, yeah, it's probably not a good situation, you know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So then, you know, with, with that said, is there, is there a specific date that you have, uh, kind of labeled like, okay, well, it's when I'm going to take my vacation, it's going to be this particular day or does it, is you, it all based off of like when the week starts and ends? Yeah. If I had to draw out of a hat and the number was somewhere between November 10th and 24th, I'd probably be happy on, on any of those days. Yeah. Right. If, if yeah, it was the sixth, if it was the sixth, I'd be excited, but I'd be wishing for the 16th. So. Right. I gotcha. Yeah. So then, um, what, what, what else do you, uh, kind of focus on when, you know, you're out in the timber, those, the, the second and third week in October or in November, um, you know, what are, what are the things you really focus on that, uh, you know, okay, I need to be in this tree stand at this time with this wind. Um, what m- helps you make your decisions? What are the, those factors? I'm trying to think of a situation where I'm just trying to 
Well, I guess it would be, I either think that I'm downwind of a place that the Bucks are betting. I mean, that's something we all talk about. So put me there or, and that's probably like an afternoon thing. Or in the morning, I've gone into a place that's just on the perimeter of the dough beds, and I'm going to sit there as long as I possibly can. And, you know, the smartphones have made that a lot easier, at least for me. I mean, sometimes if I take a little break in the morning, I get texting or something like that, you know, at least to sit till one or three o'clock. And it's just not as hard as it used to be, it seems like. Yeah. And and if I was on dough bed, it would be, yeah, don't, don't get anxious at 10, 10 a.m. I mean, because... 12:30 p.m. on November 12th, you probably is as as good a situation as any, even though it doesn't feel like it, you know. Yeah. Um, other than that, if you had, yeah, if you've got a pinch point or a fence row or something like that, which is just, I feel like those are a little bit more luck. I mean, you know, they're going to move through there at some point, but yeah. if you don't feel like you're 120 yards from does, your odds start to go down, and if you don't feel like you're 120 yards from a buck bed, your odds start to go down unless you've just got, you know, the perfect little funnel. So it's kind of those three things, a pinch point funnel that I know they've got to move through to transition from one property to the other or next to where somebody's laying down. And like I said, it'd be a, a buck bed in the afternoon or doe beds in the morning. Right. So yep. what's your favorite? I mean, do you have a particular set uh, on the in on the farms that you hunt that you look forward to every year or that you get excited about over all the other spots? just a second um it would be uh really i think equal pieces either of those two uh i think i like the witching hour so i think i like the evening sit maybe a little bit more just because it's it's nice when it's getting darker and cooler and things get quiet as opposed to it's uh sunny and 65 degrees and it's 11 30 a.m you know that's more of a that's more of a test of just can you keep your butt in the seat? Whereas in the evenings you just get that hour of magic, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So now kind of elaborating on that, do you have a stand uh, of all those properties that you've killed the most deer out of, or it's just, okay, well, uh, I, I'm, I'm struggling this year. I'm going to go to old faithful. It's been equal. I put, uh, probably equal pieces actually as i think about it so and and they are in exactly on the east and west side like we talked about and then in the suburbs it's been basically that same setup just applied to a different property i happen to be in the suburbs i was on a property where there's a like a four acre just kind of grass field that the deer just like to head to in the evenings and it seems like there the bucks and the does maybe are hanging out a little more because they've got no options they've got to hunker down somewhere in the woods but it's just the same setup applied to a different place. Um, so, and yeah, so, so then let's see here. So of all, so let's talk a little bit about what you're looking for, uh, as far as a deer is concerned. Are you looking for uh, a four-year-old? Are you looking for a three-year-old? Are you looking for, you know, something from the antler department? You know, let's say it has to be over 140. What are your, what are your, your deer goals per se? My deer goals is get, is get to know one and have some fun uh, looking for him for that year, for the next year. What I mean, if I had, it, I'd rather get to know a buck and target it than walk out to a place I don't know and get lucky. Um, but it would be really unlikely actually this year, I think I put down a two and a half year old this year. It was a long story, but I had, 
I had two bigger bucks working around me in the burbs. One of them walked through. He's probably 145 inch eight point with all these Christmas lights tangled up in his antlers. And I just, it was awesome. Yeah. And I was tangled up in my stand. It was a long story, but I had just snuck into my stand. I got tangled up in my gear cord. And so I was kind of like my feet tied together down below me. And, uh, and it was really high adrenaline, high confusion. And that deer came through and I didn't take a shot. And then here comes another 10 point out of the brush and I shot him and in hindsight, I was, I actually had a camera on. So I was, you know how it gets, you get, there's a lot of logistics to figuring this out. And it's my kind of my first year filming and he had great genes and I think he was two and a half. And I, yeah, I don't think I'd see that. I'd shoot for like a four year old for sure. Um, and it's one of those, I know, I know guys say like I'm hunting for meat or something like that. And I am too. And so, you know, I eat a lot of venison. I donate some venison, but I also don't think there's anything like, wrong with saying you know part of the game for me is trying to figure out a smart buck and you know that's that's fine if you want to shoot for an older deer that's fine it's whatever it's whatever game you want to make it you know exactly that's one thing that i was kind of thinking about this weekend was you know you got you got the guys who are hardcore public land hunters right they they only you know they they pump they they hunt public ground. It's high pressure. Then you got the guys who hunt private ground. Let's say like me, who you know, I still have to share with somebody else. I don't get to control the property that I hunt, uh, except for where I where where I want to hunt. Then you got the people who you know they manage high you know big farms for big deer, and you know they they are. Let's see they they get a basically pick you know the guys who are passing five-year-old 180s so they can hopefully get to 200 you know what i mean and yeah i I, it's all it's all what makes you happy right and i have a hard time believing that the guys who are let's say you give a a guy in a a hardcore guy who's currently hunting public ground you give him a million dollars he's probably going to go buy a farm and transition his hunting style to planting food plots and you know trying to manage his deer better to get some some bigger antlers unless you are 100 percent uh you know i'm hardcore for venison type of you know so everybody i think you know says one thing but when it all comes down to it you know you know they probably would go for the big antlers yeah and it and somebody might find out you know that like is the, maybe if the struggle goes away a little bit, it might lose a little. So you might find out that's not what you really wanted, you know? So, and that's Absolutely. what I think is so cool about there's a, you know, we're all talking about public hunting a lot more now. And I think it's because it's not all about the antlers. It's about the game and it's about Amen. trying to get smarter and trying to get in shape. And, and, you know, we didn't talk about that, but I'll go down to uh, some hilly, some hilly ground in Southern Ohio. The problem is we only go down there for three or four days a year. So you don't get smart too quickly one year you learn a little something the next year you learn a little bit more and uh, that's fun too you know trying to find the right ridge line or the right saddle or something like that and maybe the deer won't be as big but you've worked your butt off to get there that's for sure (laughs) absolutely absolutely yeah yeah and and, and, but at the same time you know some people will say well a food plot you might as well have a corn feeder out and uh maybe that's kind of true but the other thing you can't knock is maybe a guy just likes to put some seed in the ground and figure out what his soil is, and that's all fun, too. And it's maybe 50% that and 50% the deer that might come to it, you know? It's just fun. Right. So, right. Amen. 
Yeah. So before before we leave, and I want to say thank you very much for coming on the show today. But before you leave, you, you mentioned um, you wanted to take a second and say something about uh, the environment. Yeah. No. Before I do that, can I run you through a couple gear things just because they're oh, yeah. at me? Do you mind? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I'll just throw this stuff out there. Okay. Um, last year. I switched from, uh, I've shot mechanical for a while. Not, I just haven't overthought, overthought it. I just shot Spitfires for like five years. I bought a box and I stuck with them. Yeah. And last year I switched to kill zones, two blade kill zones. Yeah. It's beautiful. You know, that's a beautiful little mechanical. It killed five deer that I shot with it. Not one of those deer had a very good blood trail. And so I found them all, but it was like on my hands and knees looking for specks of blood, the size of a flea. And yeah. so I think I'm going to go back to three blades and, I don't know if there's something to that, but we talked data. I've got five points where, like, each time I couldn't get a good blood trail with it. So it's not really a broadhead-specific thing, but I'm curious if a two-blade just lets the hide kind of seal back up a little more than a three-blade. Huh. So that's something that's to think good, about. You know, if you're listening to this podcast right now, comment below to see if you've had any issues with a, a two-blade mechanical not leaving as good of a blood trail as a three-blade mechanical so uh comment uh below on the on the facebook page uh what's next yeah am i just unlucky five times a row five times in a row right. is there something to that um i won't run ozone in my car when i'm in it so i've got a little cargo carrier i put my stuff in a plastic bin and i run ozone out in that if i was going to clean my car out i would probably leave it out at night or whatever and run the ozone and then open the windows and then get back in so i like ozone right. I'm just kind of choosing not to breathe it, but I'm an ozone fan. I'm just, you know, that's, I don't think I'd have one running in the lighter when I'm driving down the road, but it doesn't mean I wouldn't buy one and use it. So for sure. Um, this year, uh, the DJI Mavic, I had a buddy take me out and show me his drone and he's like, let's just go check out my property. This guy got like national geographic footage. Look at down and looking down at some bucks down near Columbus. And so I never thought of a drone as like a scouting tool. I really think they could be, though, not so much to go, don't go look for an elk and then move over the hill to get to it. Yeah. But if you want to see maybe what's happening in the far back field, like the far back soybean field, it's crazy what you can get for not a ton of money. They're pretty fun. So I just, that really surprised me. I thought that was pretty, pretty yeah, cool. There was toy. an interesting article about, you know, the use of drones and hunting uh, that, Man, I can't remember who wrote it. It might have been Outdoor Life. It might have been on Outdoor Life. But anyway, you know, the whole thing of uh, is drones going to take away, you know, these outfitters, if they got some high-paying guy or they're keeping track of, let's say, a giant deer or a giant elk, and um, they're using drones to basically locate these animals, drop someone in, they kill it, off to the next one. You know, it kind of takes a little bit of the sport out of it, all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah. 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 I wouldn't do that. But if you want to maybe kind of survey the property in August and just see anything walking around, it's kind of fun, you know, on an August evening right. to just see what's out there. So it's kind of a cool toy. Um, and then uh, I'm, I'm real proud of my setup with my first light, North Branch. And uh, anybody who's got the the North Branch, it's it's one of those conversations of is are they oriented toward whitetail or is this more of a mountain-type apparel company? So I bought the... the uh, the North Branch top and and the uh, the pants have like a mile of zippers on them, yeah. and I think they, it's some kind of like instant response, like call of nature feature. If you know what I mean, where like the whole butt opens up and stuff like that. Yeah. But 
it's not that warm. So what I do is when I go into the stand, um, I go in cold. I always walk to where I'm almost a little on the cold side. And then when I get up in the stand, I put polar fleece inside the pants on top of my legs. And I throw on like a core four element down jacket. And I just find like those two cheap things. If you pick up like a cheap loft layer and then you pick up like even polar fleece, which weighs nothing and pack it into your legs when you're sitting in the stand, you can take a piece of apparel and make it pretty effective throughout the season. So anyway, I'm just always happy when I get in the stand and I put the polar fleece in and then just like the tops of your legs have like three quarter inch of loft sitting on top of them. They're not air conditioning your whole body you know yeah for sure for sure so, that's interesting yeah yeah now let's get yeah. let's get so, to this right. uh let's get to this uh environmental thing that you wanted to talk about yeah i appreciate it man yeah I, and this is not the opinion of the nine finger chronicles <laughs> but you talked about leaving the uh the ata show and you kind of felt like maybe the deer wasn't i don't know featured or respected like you'd hope um i always feel like the forums I'm participating in or the conversations I hear, I mean, how much, how many words have been exchanged about the public lands debate? And, uh, I feel the same way about it, but I also feel like for whatever reason, you know, as much as we're conservationists, I just don't think we give enough, uh, uh I guess thought and consideration, the possibilities of climate change. Yeah. And so I, I, yeah, just, you know, if you look at the data, it's nobody's a hundred percent sure of anything, but, Right. I kind of think of it as like if, you know, if I put you in a minivan and I was like, hey, this has got a 70% chance to get to the destination, you're like, well, I'll think about that 30% before I pile my family in it, you know? Right. And so for me, it's like if there's a big enough possibility that that some of this stuff is, is you know, the issue that, that it could be, uh, I just think we as sportsmen should be open-minded to it. I think that you can be a conservative and you can still say, now there's something to talk about here that I'm not just going to tell somebody, Oh, you just, you know, you've listened to Al Gore too much or something like that. Yeah. But, right. So, and you know, I'll tell you, like, I don't even, I, it surprises me. I haven't even seen like Steve Ranella talk much about it. And I'm always curious, like, what does he think? He's a pretty objective guy, you know, Right. but even nobody touches it. Nobody in the inter- industry really wants to touch it. And anyway, yeah. I'm more concerned with like short term stuff. Yeah. I, I tell you what, I, I without a doubt believe that the, you know, pollution, uh, could, uh, you know, could be a, a factor for that. But I remember years ago talking about, you know, uh, and listening to a science scientist talk about that volcano that erupted in Iceland, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it erupted and it closed down like air traffic all over Europe, I believe, um, yeah. they said that yeah. the poisonous gas that that one volcano put out in, um, and this, the, the stats that I'm providing, I'm not sure if they're accurate or not because it happened so long ago. But the 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 that one eruption from that one volcano was the equivalent to like the United States like 50 years worth of uh, um, gas that we put out. So the Earth also plays a huge role. Just nature plays a huge role in warming and cooling, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, I'm sure yep. that we, we do our, we do our part from the pollution standpoint, uh, and, you know, putting the poisonous gas in, but you know, mother earth's the bitch, you know, a son of a bitch too. Sometimes, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can't debate that. No, that's true. But she also wipes out species in certain periods of, you know, periods of the right. history as well, where there's mass extinction. So it's not always yep. pleasant, but no, you're right. right for, yeah, for yeah. sure. 
Well, hey, it, and it's definitely a topic that we need to, you know, talk about someday. So maybe I'll get like a climatologist or someone from the Weather Channel on and, and have a, a real discussion with someone who has real cr- credentials and not just, you know, my opinion and your opinion of, uh, of uh, you know, some, some, I guess, average Joes, so to speak. Yeah, get an expert and get somebody balanced. Right. I, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yep. Well, I tell you what, Jason, I really appreciate you taking time uh, to come on the podcast today. Thank you very much, man. Thank you, Dan. I really enjoy your podcast. You provide a lot, like everybody, you provide a lot of good drives to work and back from work. <laughs> and if I can make one person smile on the way to their job, that's my goal. You do that a lot. Really appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> and that brings us to an end of another hump day podcast huge shout out to jason for coming on the show taking time to do this recording really appreciate it good luck this upcoming season huge shout out to each and every one of you for taking time to download this podcast uh i really appreciate it without you guys doing that this you know this podcast would probably not exist well it might but i i I wouldn't be getting paid for it (laughs) uh that makes me sound like an asshole anyway Huge shout out to the partners of this podcast, Wasp, Ozonics, Exodus, Lone Wolf, Ripcord, Deer Lab, and Gearhead. Remember um, Wasp, Ozonics, Exodus, Lone Wolf, and Deer Lab. Uh, they all have deals and remember to, you know, discounts and deals and giveaways. Be sure to uh, learn more about that. If you guys want to leave a review, go to iTunes, leave a review. Uh, what, tell me if you hate this podcast or love this podcast. Uh, I would, I, If I was you, I'd recommend giving it a five-star review, um, but that's just me. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, follow me on all the social media platforms. Other than that, guys, if you're going to be in a tree and you're going to be, I don't know, trimming shooting lanes or just hanging out with the squirrels wear your damn safety harness have a good rest of the week Thank you.